Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast, brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, Major Michael Keone Medici, former associate professor in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, interviews Lieutenant Colonel Mike Leibowitz. Lieutenant Colonel Leibowitz is a judge advocate in the Army Reserve and serves as an adjunct professor for the National Security Law Department. In his uniform capacity, he has also served as the Chief of National Security Law for our cyber and was assigned as DOD Special Trial Counsel representing the United States in the military commissions, an experience he touches on in this podcast. In his civilian capacity, he currently works as the Senior Attorney at the Government Accountability Office, where he primarily handles issues involving information technology, cybersecurity, and critical infrastructure. He has also served as an attorney in the National Security Law Division for the Department of Justice, assisting in complex cyber, counterintelligence, and counterterrorism investigations. In today's podcast, Lieutenant Colonel Leibowitz discusses his recent publication discussing the existing electronic surveillance laws and whether the future of the quantum internet will render them obsolete. We hope you enjoy this episode. We start off this episode um, asking... Colonel Leibowitz to explain a little bit about his unique background uh, and one experience with the commissions. So a while back, I worked on the 9-11 case in the military commissions, and then I went to my civilian job at Department of Justice. They asked me to come back to the military commissions, and I believe around 2016, I was named a special trial counsel for the military commissions for a specific issue where defense counsel were accused of exploiting a uh, a technical glitch on Cipernet and essentially bypassing um, kind of the discovery rules by helping themselves to discovery that the defense counsel deemed to be relevant, which instead of having the government kind of decide and go through the process. So I had to um, essentially go to uh, three different cases down at, at Guantanamo Bay in front of uh, various judges and attempt to claw back the information that the defense counsel had uh, exploited from the computer system. So it's safe to say, sir, you have a bit of expertise when it comes to uh, computer forensics and litigation. I would say some experience. I don't know about the expertise. (laughs) (laughs) Understood, sir. So tell us a little bit about what you have forthcoming in publication, sir. I'm kind of a nerd for all things cyber, and I really got into reading about the nascent quantum internet. And the quantum internet is essentially going to be the next generation internet of communications and things like that. And it operates a lot more physically different than how the current internet operates. So the current internet has, they call it packet switch communication. Say you're talking about an email or something like that, where literally information is chopped up into bits, packets. Routers will then move that information around the internet until it gets to... um, until where the information wants to be, like from the beginning to the destination. Yes, sir. It's kind of like uh, the design of the internet was for redundancy and speed, and so these packets are how we move lots of information rather quickly. Exactly, and it's like ones and twos are kind of what they're packeted together and moved throughout the internet. That's how you communicate. So the quantum internet behaves completely different. What it does is it essentially takes out the packets from the equation. So the packets will be gone from the equation, and what the most viable way of the quantum internet will work is, is that essentially the data is going to teleport. 
So from point A to point C, because there's a little bit of science involved with point B. So there's no more packets. The information just goes from one to the other without that. And I thought that was really interesting. And the nerd in me was like, wow, that's great. I nerded out about that. But then I started thinking about the phrase packet switched electronic surveillance. And electronic surveillance is essentially how all near real time interceptions of information, whether it's emails or digital voice or anything like that, the content that law enforcement or investigative agencies or the intelligence community or even adversary governments, how they intercept communications, whether lawfully or not, hackers, the same thing, is through electronic surveillance, which the key requirement is they intercept or collect the packets. So got me thinking, if the packets are going to be eliminated from the equation, obviously the cybersecurity benefits are great, and that's what's being touted by this. They're calling it spy-proof. They're calling it hacker-proof. Governments from China to Europe to the United States are spending billions upon billions of dollars to develop the quantum internet because without the packets, it's going to vastly improve cybersecurity. If you think about it, a quantum internet on a classical system can solve something that would take a classical internet encryption about 50,000 years to solve, the quantum internet can solve it in two seconds. So that's what we're looking at there. That's why there's this huge race for the quantum internet. But again, what I was thinking about was, what about the other side of it? Because our government and adversary governments, we rely on lawful electronic surveillance, and that's going to be gone once the packets go away. So the paper is suggesting, one, the government needs to think about this, um, not from just the cybersecurity aspect, but also from the lawful um, electronic surveillance part of it to see, you know, where in the statute there's any holes in this. Because my view is that the statutes, as they stand right now, that govern kind of the lawful electronic surveillance that our government relies on, those statutes might not account for the physical differences that the quantum internet would make. So what you have in the future then, once the quantum internet comes, if the statute isn't caught up yet, you're going to have judges essentially playing legal whack-a-mole, trying to interpret this on the fly, and you're going to have government agencies trying to interpret what they can and cannot do on the fly. So the paper recommends getting a head start on that and being proactive so that once the first quantum internet and quantum system comes online, the government is ready to essentially protect the nation and and conduct the national security uh, business that it's uh, entitled to do so pursuant to the law. Sir, that's a lot to take in. It is, and I think I just put some people to sleep, and although for me, I'm just like, yes, let's talk more about quantum internet. Where do you see um, electronic surveillance and those authorities will essentially be rendered moot uh, once quantum systems come, are you saying online or are powered on? It'll be gradual. So by 2030, experts predict that there are going to be some very viable and in-use quantum networks. So 2030 is kind of the target date of when they think this is going to be ready. But again, there's countries like China that are racing to beat us to it. Europe is racing to beat us to it. There's a lot of companies that are working on this. There are a lot of um, private entities and public entities and, and universities that are all working toward this. Once it comes online, There might be an issue with, say, maybe a foreign adversary or maybe someone who's aligned with a foreign or an agent of a foreign government starts using the quantum Internet knowing that uh, it works better. And and if the United States government lawfully knows that this information is there, we want to be able to get to it. So it's all kind of exponential. uh, But once these these quantum networks start coming up, 
we're going to realize there's national security implications. And adversary governments and the United States government and friendly governments are all going to want to conduct uh, their national security investigations, which we currently do right now. I can give you an example. There's a, every year, the ODNI produces a, a transparency report. It's unclassified. It's for public uh, consumption. And it talks about certain um, authorizations regarding specifically addressing um, packet-switched electronic surveillance, for example. And the most recent published report said that there were 233,000 targets. So if you have a quantum internet that's up and running throughout the world, then theoretically we could be losing 233,000 national security targets that have been vetted, are deemed important by the intelligence community for national security purposes. And that's a lot. That's a big deal. And I think the focus is so much on the cybersecurity part of it, the, there's no thinking about the um, national security aspect of it from the other, the other end of it. So how does ongoing conversation about big data fit into this, sir? Was that something you explored in your paper? I did, yes. Yeah. So the history of the Internet and, and cyber in relation to the U.S. government is kind of this long and sordid history that's essentially where you would think in a perfect world, private and public sectors would work together to uh, improve and protect, if nothing else, cybersecurity of data. Even if a company loses its data, that could be a national security concern. I'm thinking of you know, like even oil companies or logistics companies or anything you can think of, medical corporations, universities, research and development, all the big ones, right? But even to this day, it's still voluntary, the sharing. So if a company finds out that, hey, there's there's some issue, cybersecurity issue, they might not share. It's voluntary to share it with the U.S. government. And I think it's only like in like the 2014 and 2015 when even the voluntary sharing thing was even really codified. So it's, it's very, the government and the public sector has been, or private sector, excuse me, has been very slow in working together. So if you get, if we don't do anything and we're not proactive, we're going to have the same problems, but on a much harsher scale because, again, the quantum aspect of it, particularly in the, in the hands of hackers or adversary governments, can be proved disastrous. And at the same time, you're going to have our adversary governments or hackers or criminals um, hiding behind the uh, quantum internet, the protections, the cybersecurity protections that we're affording ourselves, they're going to be hiding behind that same shield. So I talk about things in the paper such as maybe this is where we want to revisit the issue of backdoors. If you remember there was a San Bernardino, California um, terrorist attack a few years ago. There was a big issue with Apple. Can Apple help with the back door to get into the system so we can find out, you know, what's going on behind the scenes with these terrorists who uses Apple phones? And, you know, and that issue kind of worked around and it became mooted through other, because of other reasons. But it's the same thing is that is this where we finally work with the public se- or the private sector to incorporate back doors for certain national security investigations that are vetted? I'm not talking about the public or the government says, hey, we need this with nothing behind it. Maybe we get court orders or something like that. So I think that would be part of it. And there's also um, provisions in the various statutes, such as uh, technical assistance, uh, which in the current paradigm, you know, if there's a court order, then the, the providers are required, internet providers, for example, cell phone providers, they're required to um, provide technical assistance to get that information that's, you know, whether it's from a court order or whatever, to the, the investigators through lawful, lawful means. But again, that's, it's also kind of cost prohibitive and things like that, it's a lot of, but that's the main part of that. So what happens if, this ha- if we use the current statutory framework 
and then a provider comes back and says, well, it's no longer technically feasible or it's not financially feasible to assist you in gathering this quantum internet data that is stored in our, in our systems. And that's where this is where we wanna, might want to get ahead of that and set some more guidelines and framework for that. Um, so there's a lot of different um, aspects that, that I think the public-private sectors are going to really need to work together on to make this work. Otherwise, it's gonna, we're going to lose a lot of national security information that's going to affect um, the U.S. government's national security. I think one of the things that we found from uh, the uh, emphasis on trying to develop and incorporate emerging technologies is that we're trying to shift from an army that is network-centric in our cybersecurity to one that is data-centric. And that seems consistent with a mindset and a movement towards quantum if, if I understand, you know, kind of the preliminary explanation of the quantum internet, sir. So what were some of the conclusions of your particular paper? Yeah, so one of the biggest conclusions I, I, um, I arrived at was that lawful electronic surveillance collection is probably no longer going to be in the transit when data is being transited from one node to another because the packets are going to be gone. So what we're going to switch to is more of the storage areas, the data centers, the, um, the cloud areas, wherever data is physically being stored. Now, of course, even in a quantum data storage, it's going to be different physically than how we store it, but the concept is the same. The data has to go somewhere and stay somewhere. And that's where I think the, um, the surveillance is going to be. So the next question is, you know, how can we get it as close to real-time interceptions that we have now as possible when you're dealing with stored data since you're not going to get the transit? How are we going to know even when the data is transmitted from one node to the other since, again, there's no wires to move the information through? It's going to be, it's going to be teleported. So, again, that comes back to the who's, who's, who's running the data centers, who's the quantum data centers. And so there's issues of and some of the areas I come up with. Are we going to create essentially a second hop? So the data teleports to the data center, and then are they going to, um, if, there's a t if there's data that's targeted by the U.S. government or whoever, you know, through lawful um, electronic surveillance uh, uh, means, are they going to have a second hop that's going to move that data from the data center to, you know, whatever storage area or collection area that the government is using for that target? So it's just, it's going to be a lot of different logistics, a lot of physical changes, but again, the whole point of it is it's, it's all going to change without the packets. Because the whole point of the paper is that the packets are being taken away. What do you do? And then so the focus, okay, on storage areas, which, of course, you can get stuff now, you know, through lawful means, um, whether it's search warrants or whatever it is, depending on what type of case you're looking at. But with the physical elements of that in the statutory framework, it needs to be adjusted and modified to uh, – because look at, look at the history of um, – um, circuit switched communications, for example, that's the old-fashioned wiretapping. You know, when you have phones, the old phones, right? That's how they wiretap through circuits would switch it, move the data through the wires. Then um, it evolved to packet switched for digital voice and the, you know the emails, electronic data. So this is we're now going to be another step beyond that, and that's where the quantum data is going to be. But that's that's where the physical parts are going to change, and that's where the storage area is going to become so much more vitally important.
Sir, really thank you for, uh, for taking the time to explain, um, and I'm sure what you've certainly, um, having written a substantial piece of scholarship that's going to uh, be published. But where again, sir, is this going to be? It should be published in the uh, Boston University Journal of Science and Technology Law. Oh, fantastic, sir. Really appreciate you coming in and, and explaining that, sir, and everything that you do for our students. Is there anything you'd like to close out with, with our NSL Inscripted listeners, maybe over uh, your pursuit of this particular passion of yours, sir? Like, how did you get to this point? Uh, you know, it's something I'm interested in. I work on, um, you know, obviously cyber is kind of a big part of what I do for a living, um, whether it's teaching it here at the JAG school or in my civilian capacity or in prior uh, military jobs. And you know, it's something where the one thing I learned, I would say, from this is that the government is not always as proactive, shockingly, as uh, you know, we think it can be. And sometimes, or quite often, it comes back to bite us when we're trying to deal with something exigent and or new. And so the whole point of this, where I came from this, is let's try to be proactive and get ahead of it. Because once the, once the hackers, they call it Q-Day, is when the hackers first get the quantum internet. Once they start doing that, and, if we have the, and we're still using the classical internet, they're going to hack us to death. Um, or whether it's adversary governments, the same thing. So it's just a matter of... Um, being a bit proactive and a bit creative, to be honest, you know, and, and that's kind of where I, I urge all listeners to any area of interest that they have, um, if it aligns with um, things they know, to kind of look into it. And don't just assume that, oh, it'll all get worked out or the statute will cover it, because in this instance, I'm not convinced that the current statute framework will cover something that is going to happen. Um, some people say, oh, it's so long in the future, we don't have to worry about it. But doing the research, I mean, it's uh, expert after experts predict 2030 is, is when this is going to happen. So that's not, that, that's not too long from now. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.